There was a particular phenomenon that would happen at the University of North Carolina basketball camps. Yep, I'm starting with sports. I'm just going back to that well time and again. In the late 80s and early 90s. It all started decades before when Dean Smith, the legendary coach of the Tar Heels, instituted a team rule. When his team was on offense, if a teammate assisted a player on a made basket, the player that scored had to, while he was running back down the court to play defense, point to the player that passed him the ball, that gave him the assist. You see, basketball is a team sport, but individual talents can have more of an impact on the game in basketball than in many other team sports. So individual talent is crucial to success, but you also have to have all of that talent playing together or else you'll get the Washington Wizards. <laughs> it's true, though. <laughs> so to show how connected and dependent one another on one another his Tar Heels were, Dean Smith said that if a teammate sets you up for a basket, you point at the teammate to say he made it happen. I might have made the... The player saying, I might have made the layup. I didn't make many layups, so suspension of disbelief. The player might have made the layup, but the credit goes to the guy who made the pass. Dean Smith instituted this before I was born. Watch a UNC game this fall, and you'll see that the Tar Heels are still pointing at their teammates all game long. Dean Smith stopped coaching in the 90s. That's how you build DNA and culture. But I digress. Anyways, the particular phenomenon that would happen at the UNC summer basketball camp would start with a bunch of pre-teenage kids who weren't particularly good at basketball, but were trying to impress Dean Smith. And if you aren't particularly good at basketball, what do you do to impress the legend? You show him just how much you have bought into his program ideology. So if you made a layup after a nice pass, you are very sure that you're pointing at the guy that made the pass. But here's the problem. Most of these kids weren't very good at basketball, so they didn't make many layups after easy passes. So they didn't have a ton of opportunities to point to someone who'd made the pass after a made basket. So they had to improvise. And that's how it happened that a bunch of preteen boys began pointing at cafeteria workers who had spooned them their lunch, and to people that held the door open for them, and to the alarm clock that woke them up. They became obsessed with giving credit to the people and things around them that made their life possible. There's a famous chapter in the letter to the Hebrews. We read some of it last week. It begins by talking about faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And then the writer walks through the heroes of faith from the Hebrew scriptures. The writer talks about Abel and Enoch and Noah from the very beginning of Genesis. Then the writer moves to Abraham and Moses, then to other leaders and heroes of Israel. And so the writer of Hebrews talks about faith the way we tend to think about it is primarily individual. I have faith. You have faith. He, she has faith. Abel had faith. Enoch had faith. Noah had faith. Abraham had faith. Faith is an individual affair. Faith is a game of one-on-one. -on -one. But that's not where the writer of Hebrews leaves it. We're going to look at the end of the chapter today, but what is going to happen is the same sort of thing that Dean Smith instilled in his UNC program. You see, making a basket in basketball is a seemingly individual thing. I have the ball, I shoot it, it goes in, we're suspending disbelief, so it does go in, even though if I had a basketball and shot it, it wouldn't go in, but you're staying with me. And for a while, if you watched the NBA, it would seem like it was five interrelated games of one-on-one. -on -one. It's called iso ball. 
It's why my wife won't watch the NBA. Sorry. But Dean knew that basketball was at its heart a team game, even if it was a team game that rewarded individual talent more than other games. And Dean knew as well that, as many that have played basketball, that if you play as a team, you can work to get much easier baskets than if one person tries to take on the other team all by himself. That's why the Houston Rockets won't win an NBA title. The finger point was the bridge from a seemingly individual action to the collective effort behind it all and the effort that animated it all. And now we're going to take a look at how the writer of Hebrews finishes the chapter as I stop my Dean Smith hagiography. Starting with verse 29. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as if it were dry land. But when the Egyptians attempted to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had received the spies in peace. And what more should I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, refusing to accept release in order to obtain a better resurrection. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned to death. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, persecuted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. Yet all these things... Though they were commended for their faith, they did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better so that they would not, apart from us, be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. So in this section, the writer of Hebrews takes us through a Cliff's Notes of the Old Testament, hitting some of the highlights of the ways in which faith was made manifest. The people Israel walked through the Red Sea in the famous story of the Exodus. They called out to God in their slavery and persecution, and God heard their cry and delivered them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. There were plagues and signs, and it culminated in the people Israel being stuck, caught between the Red Sea and the charging Egyptian army. Moses raised his hands to the sky, and the Red Sea parted, and the people walked across the dry land. Then the Egyptian army was drowned in their attempt to pursue the Israelites. Next, the writer talks about Jericho. The Israelites came up against an incredibly fortified city, and they needed to take the city. God tells them to walk around the city once a day for six days, and on the seventh day, to walk around the city seven times, blow their trumpets, and shout. They do all of this, and the city walls fall. They sack the city, and only Rahab survives after Rahab welcomed and sheltered the Israelite spies. Then the writer of Hebrews goes into warp speed. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, uh, David, and Samuel. Most of these are from the book of Judges, where Israel is continually under threat 
from the neighboring peoples, and God saves the people through the judges in miraculous ways. Gideon, for instance, only had 300 men and defeated a great army, and clearly Herodotus plagiarized the Bible. That's a history nerd joke, and if you know who Herodotus is, you get extra credit. Then the writer of Hebrews goes into ludicrous speed, which is a Spaceballs reference. They've gone to plaid. I'm just striking out all over the place today. And stops naming people, but talks about attributes of people of faith that probably related to a number of people in the Old Testament and other apocryphal writings at the time. Folks who were punished and martyred. Folks who were left wandering alone. Folks who were poor. Basically, people who had given up everything in the name of faith. We are talking about the prophets. We are talking about the people who renounced earthly gain in the name of faith. And this letter is written to a church in a couple generations after Jesus lived and died. So this is probably also talking about victims of Roman and Jewish persecution. The first Christians who died because they wouldn't give up the claim that Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, rose from the dead and is Lord. What I find really interesting about all of this is the transition the writer has made in tone in talking about faith from the, in the first part of the chapter to talking about faith in the second part. Initially, it was the faith of individuals, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses. And then it transitioned sharply into how, by faith, the community walked through the Red Sea. When we talk about the community defeating Jericho. And even when we pick up individuals, um, again, their acts of faith are on behalf of and included the entire community. Gideon's act of faith was on behalf of and included action from the whole community. The judges, the kings, the prophets, they're all offices within the community. Faith has gone from Abraham hearing God's voice and acting to something that happens within, for, and on behalf of the whole people Israel. The writer has gone from talking exclusively about individual faith to talking about corporate faith, faith that exists within a community. You see, as Western Protestants, we are conditioned to think of prim as primarily personal. It's not really our fault. It's Descartes. I think, therefore, I am. All of Western thought has been conditioned by Descartes' notion that the thinking individual is the only thing we can know for sure exists. I will not do any more bad philosophy, but just trust me. In all areas of life, we are hyper-individualistic. So when we think of faith and belief, we think of an individual ascribing to some sort of notion. What do you believe? What do I believe? Are you a person of faith? It's all about what the individual thinks and believes. And so we think of faith as an individual pursuit. And church then becomes akin to a track team. In track, each individual runs their races or does their events, and the team score becomes the summation of individual achievements. The writer of Hebrews is envisioning faith as much more deeply communal. Moses raised his staff, prayed to God, and the waters parted, but it was the faith of the individual, it, the faith of the whole community, that led them across the dry land. Gideon had faith, but his faith wasn't all that was required in order to save the people from their enemies. When it all started, he had a lot more than 300 people. God whittled their numbers down until it was just the 300 that God wanted. But it wasn't just Gideon believing. All of those people who either stayed or walked away had to believe that God was in control. For the writer of Hebrews, faith is a team sport. Individual
faith matters most when combined with the faith of the people. An individual faith is dependent upon community. These few verses cover literally hundreds and thousands of years, from Exodus to beyond Acts. That's like 90% of the Bible. And at this point, the 11th chapter has covered decidedly the entire Old Testament. And then what does the writer say? Something deeply confusing. The writer has talked about the all-stars of faith. And the writer has talked about how faith functions within the community. But then the writer takes it a step forward even more. Yet all those who were condemned for their faith did not receive, sorry, yet all those, though they were commended, that changes the meaning then, for their faith, commended, did not receive what was promised, since God had providing something better so that they would not, apart from us, be made perfect. So basically we have gone through all these people and moments and stories, all of these times where faith, amazing faith, was put on display and none of it amounted to what God had promised? Abraham, Moses, the judges, the kings, the prophets didn't receive the fullness of what was promised? They're waiting for something better? And what's possibly worse for them, they won't get it apart from us? Abraham is relying on us? Moses is relying on us? David's being made perfect is dependent on us? Anyone else a little scared? But it serves to underscore the move the writer has been making throughout this whole chapter. Faith isn't one-on-one. It isn't just me and God. It's something that involves each and every one of us. And we need each other, just as we need all of the people the writer of Hebrews has mentioned in this chapter, as well as countless others, if we are going to continue on in faith. A good friend of mine, Brian Johnson, who preached here a couple weeks ago, often talks about how the Apostles' Creed is a statement of the church. The Creed, the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, yada, 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 yes, I yada, yada, the Creed, sorry, is a statement that the church makes. He says that we, we say this together in church because there are times when you might not believe part of it, but we believe it for you. Or there are times when I don't believe part of it, but you believe it for me. We say we all believe it for the moments when one of us, one of us might find it unbelievable. But this isn't just doctrinal for the sake of being doctrinal. Because the way the writer of Hebrews talks about faith, it isn't just ascribing to doctrine. Faith, as it's been talked about in Hebrews, has real-life implications and outcomes. And the creed rightly understood, our doctrine rightly understood, has real-life implications and outcomes. Which means our real life causes our faith to necessarily be communal. There are times I need you to believe in the resurrection for me and in eternal life for me because there are times I'm surrounded by death, when I've lost a loved one, when the reality of death is pressing upon me, I can't see anything else, when I'm faced with my own death. I need you to believe in the resurrection and eternal life because all I can see is the finality of death. Or we can even remove this from doctrine and into the basic language of our faith. Sometimes I need you to believe that Jesus loves me. Sometimes I need you to believe in the unconditional love of God. Because I live 24-7 with myself, and I know how often I mess up, how often I fall short. I know my own faults and failings. And I need you to believe in the unconditional love of God because there are times that I don't understand why God could or should love me. I doubt I'm alone in this. 
And I think this gets to the heart of why faith is a team sport. You see, it's not that I need you all to believe things for me because the Christian faith has backwards beliefs that only cult-like peer pressure could get you to stick with. It's that the core beliefs of our Christian faith hit on the central worries and anxieties of our life that we can't help but, from time to time, doubt. It's not because it's crazy, it's because it's too good to be true. And having taken the bait, we keep waiting for the switch. The creator of heaven and earth loves me unconditionally? Well, that must be because he doesn't know me all that well. He's got a few billion of us to worry about after all. Wait, he knows me intimately and still loves me? I mean, this is what we have always wanted. We're just so deeply conditioned to believe we'll never get it. So you believe it for me. I believe it for you. And we believe it together. We are conditioned to think that we don't need each other in order to have faith. That faith is this personal, individual pursuit. But we are created for community. We are created to have faith. And I believe Hebrews shows us that we are created to share our faith in and across community. I think we see this in how the passage ends. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. And let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer has just described the pillars of faith in the history of the people Israel. And I imagine has made oblique reference to the pillars of faith, the martyrs from that community, who are relying on the current church, the current community of faith, in order to be made perfect to experience the fullness of what God wants. And the writer says, since we are surrounded by these witnesses, since we are buttressed by their faith, since we can see what faith looks like because of the people of faith that we have before us, let's go and do it. Let's be a community of faith. Let's take our place within this drama. N.T. Wright talks about the great story of faith as being a five-act play. The first three acts are the story told in scripture. It's scripted for us. He says the fifth act is also scripted. It's the culmination of God's great rescue plan. It's the fullness of the kingdom of God. And we know that that's coming. But we live in the fourth act, which has no script. We are called to improvise, to make up the story as we go along, getting us from Act 3 to Act 5, from the early church to the culmination of God's kingdom. And in some ways, that's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here. We have this story, we have these examples of faith, but now it's our turn. It's our turn to act out our part, it's our turn to play our role. And we need each other to do that because improvisation is easier when you have other people to work with. So let's do our part, looking to Jesus, not just as the example of what it means to live as God wants us to live, but also as the one who ensures that the fullness of the kingdom of God will come. And since we need each other to do this work, to live out this faith in, in this time, we're going to take some time, as we've done throughout the summer, to process this in different ways as a church so that we can talk about how we can run our portion of the race of faith. 
So we've got some small group questions that we have. Uh, if you want to process this as a part of a small group, form your chairs over here. There's a group project in the back if you want to, to still talk it out, be in community, be a little extroverted, but also do something tactile, work with your hands. We'll have a prayer group over here uh, if you encounter scripture best through prayer. And in the back uh, over there, we have some journals if you want to um, be alone, get your thoughts out in a more individual processing way. Um, so uh, this is the last Sunday we're going to do this. Um, so either hooray or boo. Um, I, I thank you for, for humoring me uh, all throughout this summer. Um, I think uh, that it's it's been really good. I, I've really enjoyed all the buzz and the, the energy. But if you have, if this has been a struggle for you, thank you uh, for going along with us. And next week you don't have to worry about it. Uh, if you've loved this, there are tons of ways in which you can keep this going just outside of worship. So if you've really loved journaling, uh, that's a practice you can do at home. Uh, if you love small groups, if you've loved the small group discussion, we have a bunch of small groups that, that you can join. Um, and uh, so the, the, the formality of this will stop next week, but if you found a practice that really is working for you, I hope the informality of it will continue. But we're going to throw 10 minutes up on a countdown um, and disperse.